we're going to go ahead and uh, have you come back. Uh, we are finishing up our series. I love all the chatter. It's great. Uh, we're finished. We, we are um, coming towards the uh, latter part of our series on a deeply formed life. Uh, this is a book by the author Rich Villados, and so we're just kind of using these themes to talk about what it means to be formed as a Christian and some of the major topics that are uh, overlooked, uh, that we've been either malformed or deformed or shallowly formed in the Christian life. So we talked about uh, the way of rest, Sabbath rest, the need to be formed in a, a community that practices a 24-hour rest. We talked about contemplative prayer, making space uh, to be silent before God and be loved and be known and behold God. Uh, we talked about contemplative prayer being this practice taking a long, loving look at God. And we looked at uh, uh, our emotional health uh, and talked about uh, that. And then last week, we looked at our bodies, uh, the importance of, of thinking about Christians being embodied and to knowing what's going on with our body and how many bodies have been used for, uh, uh, have been hated in our society, which leads kind of into this next topic of race. Today, we're talking about race, racial reconciliation. Next week, uh, the dean of North Park Seminary, uh, Dr. Dennis Edwards, will be here uh, speaking on missional presence. So I'm excited uh, to have him here. If, you, if you've never heard him, I really encourage you to come back uh, to hear what he has to say. He's a great voice um, that's instrumental uh, in our city and, and for the North Park Seminary. Um, but today I want to talk about uh, racial uh, reconciliation. Um, to do that, uh, I want to kind of start off with like understanding of what is the gospel and think through the lenses of the gospel. Um, the text for today is Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. And I, I forgot my notes today, so you're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to... Um, be going a little freestyle here, but I have some slides as my safety net when I get lost. But uh, Ephesians 2, Paul says, for he himself is our peace, talking about Jesus, who has made the two groups one, talking about Jew and Gentile, who were both separated, has made them one and has destroyed the barrier, the wall, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, Right? So one new family was God's purpose out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Um, and so when we, we, talk about, uh, we talk about racial reconciliation, I, I first want to, the reason I said I want to start with the gospel is because um, there's many ways of thinking about the good news of Jesus, right? Um, if, if the good news of Jesus is just that we would leave here and go to heaven and secure eternal salvation, um, or if it was just to make sure that our sins were forgiven, I would say that those are, are not enough really to really understand what God has done. Um, that we, when we understand what God has done, we have to understand that there's a vertical component and there's also a horizontal component. And so the passage before this, Paul is trying to let his people know, uh, this, this, this great area of churches know, um, that he has done uh, the work that God's done. And before this, in 2 uh, verse 1, he says this. He says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins with which once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, which, by the way, I believe racism is one of the most demonic forces in our world. Uh, among whom all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. Then he says that, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you, this is the verse we always quote, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what Paul is saying here is that uh, you, it was, when Jesus came, it wasn't that he, there were some bad people who need to become good. Uh, he wasn't saying that there was good people that just, you know, were, were going to become bad. He didn't say that, you know, that there was a moral problem that he came to correct. The way Paul frames this is that you were dead and Jesus came to make you alive. But there's dead people walking around who are spiritually dead and Jesus came to make you fully alive in new life. And when we talk about this, um, there is this vertical component when, when, um, Scripture talks about that, uh, that, the, that when we come, uh, Paul will later say and it, that, that the access to God has been, the, the veil has been torn. He's referring to when Jesus died on the cross and the Holy of Holies, the, the curtain tore from top to bottom, representing that there was complete access to God. But if that's all we ever talked about, we didn't talk about the walls of hostility that need to be broken down, which Paul does later on. He's saying there's actually physical walls that need to be broken down for the gospel of Jesus Christ to really be doing what it came to do. And these walls must come down. Some, a lot of people get very excited. Oh, we have access to God. Oh yeah, we can pray. Our sins are forgiven. But we forget the fact that the gospel is not just that, that it's come to make us a new family, a new family, one new humanity uh, in which the walls were broken down. This representation of walls was a physical walls in the Jewish synagogue, there were temple courts, and there was a boundary in which only Gentiles could come so far to worship God. And then within that, past those walls was a place where Jews could worship. And then past that was the Holy of Holies in which people with certain special rights could come in to worship. And Paul says he's broken down all those walls, that the good news is not just that the temple is broken, uh, that the, the, the curtain is torn, that he's broken down all of these walls. Um, Rich Villados says this, who, who wrote the book, he says, colorblindness is not the MO of heaven. And Revelation says, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, God sees all the color. And so I think, as I think about this, I think there's going to be a lot of people who might go to heaven who are going to want to leave heaven as soon as they see it. So you're going to go, where's all my people? Where's all the, who are all these different languages? What are all these different, all these different tribes, all these different cultures? Like, where is my, where? And they're going to be shocked that, that heaven is going to be such a multifaceted beauty. And so I think, I was trying to think through today, like, what could I share today that you, that might be helpful that's not just regurgitating what you've already heard, right? We know that um, the conversation of race hit a huge heightened around George Floyd. Uh, our, our whole nation went into a civil unrest. Uh, now, I, don't, I, I think there's a couple things going on. One, you don't hear about it so much. And I don't think that it's just because people aren't still dealing with it as strongly. I think it's that the voices that are tired of trying to convert white people into seeing 
the existence of racism are really just no longer going to be wasting their energy on that anymore. They're working on building their communities, building their, their, their communities up from what I'm noticing. They're, they're focused on building their culture, building, building their neighborhoods. They're not wasting their energy talking to people who are not going to listen. But I think that it's important for us to have spaces in church where we continue to do the work, that we must realize that this is an ongoing work that we can't neglect. Uh, we can't hit this topic in our lives once there's some hot topic on the news, uh, once there's some major episode. It's a work that is ongoing. Uh, so I think we need to, one, we must normalize the complexity of being a new family. Um, being a new family is much more complex than having multiple races represented in this room. That, that, that's, um, that's not necessarily being a new family. A new family is when um, there, there's real relationships and friendships forged. There's, there's uh, freedom for, for people to voice not feeling represented or um, having their ideas put in power, having their, their, their leadership in power. Um, we, we, we've, we've done that where we hired an associate pastor, African-American, who we've sent out to be a lead pastor in Humble Park. Um, and we've been doing a lot of work on this, uh, but it's something that we must continue to put work into as a church. And it's very, very hard, especially in a neighborhood like Lincoln Square. Um, but I believe that it's very important to continue to be emphasizing this work, but, but we must normalize the complexity. We must normalize the uncomfortability of it and normalize the fact that it's messy if we're going to do it well. Um, the other is that we need to explore our own racial formation. We need to explore our own racial formation. Um, how did your family talk about differing people? Uh, think about growing up, whether spoken or unspoken. How did, was there ever a point where your family said, let's, let's cross the street here? Um, let's walk on this side of the street. And you notice as a child, maybe there was someone different from you on this side. Nothing was ever said. But what are the unspoken things that your family communicated about differing people? Who are the people that you were taught to fear? What assumptions about the group of people listed do you hold? These are very important topics to think about. So I think we must, one, normalize the complexity. Um, to think about our upbringing. And um, I want to say that, that for me, this has been a journey in my life uh, as, a, as a white male who holds a lot of privilege. And, um, it, you know, I, I remember holding an experiment a couple years ago at uh, my, my child's elementary school. Um, there was a lot of social interaction as a parent. You're basically learning to go back to school again during drop-off and pick-up and how to make friends with all these people. And I noticed, like, you know, it was really hard for me to break in um, for about a year, it was very hard for me to break into friendships. And I made this commitment for two months in my life to prioritize people different from me in social settings. And when I did that, I started to realize I've got all kinds of friends. <laughs> I noticed that I couldn't ever break into the crowd of the people who had home ownership or had certain wealth privileges. But as soon as I opened my eyes to prioritize those different from me, I began to make amazing friendships. And I, I think that um, it's a healthy practice, especially for if you're in a position of any kind of influence or power, um, to, to always position yourself somewhere in life where you are an outsider. If you are a person, a, a white, white per, a person of, of a dominant group, 
um, you know, male being the most dominant, white also being dominant. You need to position yourself where you are an outsider so you can always have the empathy of knowing what it's like. And if you're never in that space, if you're never positioning yourself in that space, you will never have eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, you'll never have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so I want to encourage you with that. And I want to spend the next 10 minutes probably. I just want, the thing I thought would be helpful is really just to share um, what uh, Michael Emerson, who's wrote Divided by Faith years ago, was a very influential book for a lot of Christian leaders uh, back in the 90s or maybe even the late, yeah, early 90s. But he's been doing more research and I really just want to regurgitate his findings for you. Um, you can listen to this talk. I can send it to you online. You can hear the fullness of it. Um, but I just want to share a little snippets of what he's found um, because I think it would be helpful for us in thinking through this landscape of being a Christian right now. Uh, and I think it'd be, it's very helpful. So basically Michael Emerson uh, has, is a sociologist at UIC and he's done a lot of research on race and Christianity and religion. And he's, he began to survey various groups of people. They've done um, surveys of practicing Christians that are white, that are minorities, surveying Christians that are Asian, that are black, that are white, um, and even non-Christians, and just really the gamut. And what he found is that um, it, when you ask the question, has the U.S. been oppressive to minorities? Uh, out of all the practicing Christians, so these are when he says practicing Christians, he means not just like someone who's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they, these are all the people at first have answered the survey. My faith is very, very important to me, and I go to church once a month. Um, so these are people who are actively attending church and who say their faith, the Christian faith is very, very important to them. 75% um, of African Americans agree, and I'm just going to share all the stats with you, and you can kind of interpret it how you want for, for a little bit. Um, but he says that the U.S. has been oppressive to minorities. Practicing Christians, 75% of African Americans say yes, they have been oppressive to minorities. After over 60% of Hispanics agree, yes, uh, that, the, that they have been oppressive. And 60% of white practicing Christians say they do not agree. So very massive flip. They do not agree that the U.S. has been oppressive to minorities. <clears throat> when asked the question, and then they asked them a series of questions, and so much more research I'm not getting into, but do you think Asians, African-Americans, Hispanics are treated less fairly in hiring, pay, and promotions in housing and mortgages and criminal justice system? Uh, the majority of Asians and African-Americans and Hispanics, Christians or not, agreed. Half of non-Christian non whites agreed. And then one group stands out among all of them, which is white practicing Christians, where about two-thirds of those people do not agree. A question of uh, with generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for African-Americans to work their way out of the lower class. The majority of all the groups, even non-Christian whites, agree except one group, white practicing Christians. 60% say that they disagree. Uh, should people from minority groups work their way up without any special favors? Now, the majority of all groups of color disagree. Half of non-Christian whites agree, half disagree, and then over two-thirds of white practicing Christians agree. It's starting to sound like a broken record here um, that you're starting to see. Uh, for only one group, does the majority believe that the American way of life needs protecting from foreign influences? The only group that said that we need to be protected from foreign influences were white practicing Christians. <laughs> Excuse me. And for only one group does the majority believe that we should have stricter limits on the number of legal immigrants, and that's 
white practicing Christians. And then for only one group, does the majority believe that some cultures have inherently better morals than others, and that's white practicing Christians. Only one Christian group does not believe that race relations can be improved by teaching about race in church. <laughs> white practicing Christians. Um, and, I, and, and, you know, it, it breaks us down so much more. But this is the one group that keeps repeatedly standing out. Only one Christian group believes that the best way to improve race relations is by converting people to Christianity. So the best way is we need to just make them Christians, and that will improve race relations. So that's their answer, is we just need to, need to convert them. Um, unlike any other group where there are no differences, white practicing Christians are twice as likely than other whites to say being white is extremely important to how they see themselves, and they are twice as likely to say they often feel the need to defend their racial group. <coughs> Excuse me. The, he, he created a racial prejudice in, in, index in which there was 15 different questions, such as, I am fearful of other races. The highest scoring group by far was white practicing Christians. And this is not explained away by political affiliation. Like it's easy to think <clears throat> where you live or what your politics are, age, income, gender, is one religious affiliation that matters. So this is very sobering, right? Especially for us that are in a room at a church that are practicing Christians, especially if you are white, it's easy to maybe feel some sense of um, shame or guilt. Um, but that's not, that's not the point. I'm happy to be part of the one-third, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you are too. So what is going on? I hope you are. Uh, what is going on? Uh, Two-thirds of practicing Christians are not following Christianity. So two-thirds of the people that are practicing Christians are, are, are not following like the, the true nature of what we read about in Ephesians, of the walls of hostility being broken down, listening to others, being a reconciler, working on being a peacemaker and practicing reconciliation. Uh, what Michael Emerson says is that they are followers of the religion of whiteness, is what he would call it, the religion of whiteness. Um, and so he has associated, again, I'm just breaking down what he said, but I believe there's, there's, there's truth in this. Um, he, as a sociologist, then breaks down, okay, every religion has totems, beliefs, and practices, and symbols. So what are those for the religion of whiteness? <clears throat> uh, the imagined right... Uh, what is whiteness? He says it's the imagined right that one's white race is to be superior or dominant in most every way, theologically, superior, morally, legally, economically, and culturally. It is that power, now centuries upon centuries old, that is felt and defended. And so he says the symbols of this religion are white Jesus and merging of the cross and flag of the United States. So kind of merging those two symbols together um, of, of like Christian nationalism. I think most of you, you know, can, can, can see this. And the, the beliefs are this, uh, the commitment to white superiority. Um, God is on the side of the dominant group. Whiteness is normative. So this is a huge one. So this is an unseen one that <clears throat> the universe is white. Whiteness is normative. And I think that that's very important to point out that we live in a lot of white noise. A lot of our, we have a lot of white noise that, um, as W.E.D. Bedois talked about that, minorities have to have a double consciousness, right? They're always having to interpret everything that, 
that in a normative white normative society, there's layers and layers of consciousness that they have to have to navigate. Um, centers white understandings not seen as white but universal. All others are inferior or questionable. White nationalism, a fusion of Christian symbols in American life, and the doctrine of black inferiority, assumed otherness of all other groups. And so these are these are the common beliefs. He said he had a colleague uh, named Glenn. Um, and I'm going to forget his last name, um, uh, Glenn uh, uh, Bracy, I think his name is. But Glenn uh, is a philosopher, uh, professor at uh, University of Villanova, and he decided to do this race test experiment in which he went to Christian churches. And he went to Christian churches as an African-American, and in half of the churches he went as an assimilated uh, African-American uh, coming in with, with uh, assumed white culture, uh, the way he worshipped was was assimilated into whiteness. The way he dressed was assimilated into whiteness. Um, he 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 came into these churches. In those churches, he was pretty widely accepted. Uh, then he half the other churches he came to were when he would dress up as as black Glenn. Uh, the way he would worship at his black church, you know, and and in those churches he was widely ignored or uh, insinuated to leave. He said he went to one church uh, to a Bible study, and in this Bible study. Uh, they were about a quarter way through the Bible study, and they took him to the basement where they showed him all of their family military images in the church basement, and then they showed them all of their guns and said, we know how to use these guns. I mean, to, to send the message. He's like, I got the message very loud and clear. Um, so this is, this is an experiment that he did as a test and noticed that when he showed up in his blackness, he was very much not welcomed. But if he showed up in assimilated white culture, um, he was welcomed. So, you know, what is the ministry opportunity? Um, I, think, I think we all feel this right now. I think this is helpful for us to think about because I think right now it's, I imagine it's very um, trying at times to figure out how to be a Christian right now. It is for me. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a thing of healing betrayal trauma, right? This, this trauma of when a group of people that I should trust and depend upon and believe the same things and protect me and, and, and help me see that, that, that those people in that same group are betraying my value, right? As someone that's, that's a person of color, this betrayal trauma that needs to be healed. And even if, if you're, we all experience this where we're seeing people that are worshiping a God that we know is a God that reconciles, um, create division and create, um, areas where messages of white superiority. Um, this is a major issue where we feel, why do we want to associate with that group, right? Why, why would we want to be connected? Why would we even want to be labeled as such uh, people, right? But we know that, thank God, that Jesus was, was not a God um, who violates uh, 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 people's, people's cultures and trust and, and background. Um, so what is the opportunity? Conversion of those following the religion of whiteness. That we could pray that many are born again. Um, and I think this is a helpful way of just thinking about it, that, that you know, that, um, that we pray that there's, you know, there's new conversion, um, conversion of people's hearts to, to be removed from, from a, a blinded worldview or, or religion where um, white, the universe as white is the dominant framework for their, for their thinking and, and defenses. And praying that they would, you know, that, I mean, how amazing would that be if you showed up and like applied for an organization like, I want to be a missionary. Where to? I want to be a missionary to the religion of whiteness. 
Like, like, I mean, that would be an interesting application. Um, but, but to see or see that there's that we're we are. This is a heart not to to um, demonize a group of people, but to really pray that that people would be awakened uh, to this. And I think with those symbols is very interesting. I, I remember writing. I I wrote. Uh, I, it's not, I have a season of Facebook. I have a very interesting following. I have about a thousand followers from Alabama and probably about a thousand followers from Chicago. And I have a melding of views um, on my Facebook. So I have a, a unique, uh, sometimes a lot of feedback. Um, and I remember writing about uh, the Birmingham bombing <clears throat> in which uh, the Birmingham bombing in 16th Street Baptist Church in which the, the, the little girls were killed in, in Birmingham in the civil rights, that it destroyed the the stained glass Jesus, and it, just, it basically shattered the white Jesus's face off of the building. And the complexities of that, that for so long, these, these, this black church had been rescued by white Jesus. They'd worshiped white Jesus. They danced in front of white Jesus. They cried in front of white Jesus. Um, but now there was something unique about that moment in which we, white Jesus's image was shattered. And even the, the devastation of those, the, the horrific you know, terror placed upon that church, that now this consciousness of this black community can, can begin to be liberated in hope of figuring out what does it look like to, to follow Jesus, not a, a, of, of this that they've um, received, but one in which uh, truly is represented them and liberates them. And um, white people really don't like it when you say that Jesus wasn't white for some reason. I don't know. I mean, just when the moment you begin to say that, there's an array of attack a defensiveness of being very upset. Well, Jesus, and it's not that they're saying that Jesus is white. They're just saying, why does it matter? Why do you got to point that out? Like, they're just very upset that you need to point, that, that, that we're trying to communicate that. Um, <clears throat> and so it's very interesting. The, the defensiveness of that is very interesting sociologically and psychologically, um, that there's some form of threat uh, for, for, the, for this. We're praying. I think it's very important to pray for for these things. And then lastly, or two more things, we need to lament where we've been. Um, We can't heal unless we have a common understanding of the past, unless we have a common understanding of of our nation and the experience of genocide of Native Americans and indigenous people. Uh, When we look at, you know, Japanese incarceration camps and um, horrible acts against uh, Asian Americans, when you look at Jim Crow, slavery, when you look at Jim Crow, you can see that these are the foundations of mass incarceration, uh, the fan, foundations of Asian violence, uh, the foundations of, of police brutality, <clears throat> that, that, that our country, we need to lament these things. We need to, to make space to grieve, to grieve these things. Uh, Sung Chan Ra uh, says this, says, lament recognizes the struggle of life and cries out for justice against existing injustices. It recognizes the struggles of life and cries out for justice against the existing injustices. Um, and so, I, 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 so what, what, what else is the ministry opportunity? I believe for us, the thing I want to, the word that I want to put out there for us is, is disruptive. Um, what does it look like for you introduce disruptive practices into areas where, where whiteness has control in our society, where whiteness dominates the space and, and prevents uh, reconciliation from happening. So I want you to think creatively in this for a minute. Um, one, maybe 
it may be like my example, like prioritizing uh, different people around you, people of color when you're in social settings, giving priority for one, seeing what that's like for you. Um, experiment with that. <clears throat> um, it could be, um, if you're a, a, a person of color here, it, it, it could be um, creating new, create, getting in touch with your, your black culture. It could be taking like a week vacation from whiteness for a while. <laughs> like I'm going to take a week off from all white culture, everything. Like, I don't know, like it might, might be, might be that. Um, <clears throat> and um, I just want to, I say that because I, I want to recognize that a lot of my talking has, has also recognized like this is a predominantly white church. Um, and and I want to make sure that you understand there's, there's practices for everyone in this. But I think uh, another practice maybe is um, your workplace. Uh, what is your workplace doing to do social good in the world? Who is holding that workplace accountable for that? Um, who, in your workplace, who, where do you have an impact and, and power to begin to make sure that the company has diverse leadership at the senior most level? Um, these are some areas where you can begin to think through. Um, when you th there's tons of organizations you can get involved with. If you need one, I have a hundred of them. But what does it look like for you to get involved with organizations that have people of color at the senior most leadership that have been rooted in their neighborhoods for a very long time doing the work? Because they are the experts. Those people who are doing this work are the experts in the field. They're the ones that are putting the work in, putting the time in, that know their neighborhoods, that know their problems. Oftentimes, we come and we began to try to study and tell those organizations what they need to do to change, to grow, or whatever. But they are the ones that we need to be listening to. Um, how, can you, how can you be disruptive? And wh wh where do you have influence and privilege? Where do you have influence and privilege where you can begin to disrupt um, the 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 religion of whiteness, the, this this worshiping of a of a white um, dominant culture. Um, so I would say your workplace is a very very powerful place to think through these things um, because there's accountability that needs to be had. There's there's good that needs to be done with profit, um, not just thinking through profitability. Um, I also would say <clears throat> um, the the friendship level is is huge and key. Um, I have so many of my friends. Um, especially when things got really crazy, there were, there were, there was, you know, there was just great to have relationship because you hear a lot of things on social media. You hear very rigid, toxic things on both sides of the conversation that if this happens or this happens, and you, you just, it's hard to navigate. And when you have a friend where you can process with each other, you can pray for each other, you can lean on each other. Um, there's a power there that, that is unshakable that you can call out each other and say, that was, that felt, that comment it impacted me um, in, in a racial way uh, to learn and to grow and to repent and forgive. And that's the last thing <clears throat> that we must do. We must repent and forgive. We must continually change. We must continually uh, turn away from the, the, the wicked ways we've received. Um, and we must also forgive the evil done. Uh, forgive the evil done. I think it was, um, my mind is going blank here for a minute. Um, but a, a well-known <clears throat> author, and I, my mind is just blank, but he said that never once has the black community created the equivalent in revenge of a KKK. I found that very, very fascinating. That the black social community, has, Christian community especially, has taught us is that we keep giving and forgiving and giving and forgiving. It's just this culture that where we have each other. You need a $5 bill, here you go. You need this, here you go. Come on over to my house. Mother Emmanuel, <clears throat> when real Dylan Roof came in 
to this Bible study in South Carolina years ago. He said on record that he almost couldn't shoot them because of their kindness. That the overwhelmth of embrace, the overwhelmth of the, the, the overwhelming feeling of being embraced because of his difference and the beauty of the resiliency of forgiveness is a model that we must learn from Christians in minority spaces. And, and we must continue to practice because that's the way of Jesus is the way of Jesus to continually forgive, continually giving back, continuing allowing God's work to do his work. Amen. Amen. Um, let me pray for us. <clears throat> um, Carol, you can, you can come up and lead us. Uh, God, I thank you for the reminder of this conversation. I pray that anything I've said that could have um, done harm in this time, that you would allow space for anyone here to share that with me um, as I'm a, doing my best to communicate here. But I pray that um, there would be space for that as, a, as an imperfect communicator. But God, I do pray that your words and your spirit here um, would do your work. I pray that you would bring us in a sense of lament <clears throat> from from our country and the way we've lived. I do pray for space to examine ourselves, examine our own racial formation and how it still comes up today in minor little ways. just want to give you space to confess any bias or prejudice or race, racist feeling or emotion or even something in your body that happened lately. Maybe you cleaned your wallet or purse tightly as you walked into a certain convenience store. What is it for you? Is there an area where you want to confess? to forgive. Forgiveness does not mean repairing a relationship with an abuser. But forgiveness is a work in our heart to image God's heart. That we no longer hold on to the lies that were behind the harm. And that we release the evildoer Not of consequence, but of our own ill will and trusting God and his beloved community to do his reconciling work in this world. There's something you need to forgive. Is there an area you need to disrupt? <clears throat> Is there an area in your world where you're like, I'm no longer going to turn a blind eye? I'm no longer going to be silent? I'm no longer going to overlook this? Where in your world 
do you need to disrupt injustice? <clears throat> and what an amazing invitation to communion today that we are one family, one body, taking the body of Jesus that was broken for us and the cup of Jesus. And he gathered his disciples says, this is the blood of the new covenant, this new covenant of this new family in which the walls of hostility are torn down. We come to the table equal to be children of Jesus. Now let's stand and worship him. Take communion together. If you need prayer, um, some of our leaders will be available for prayer in the back. You can, we can pray for you um, if you need to process anything. Uh, come worship, take communion, and let's, let's sing.